This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I'm so excited that Ed Young is here. He writes about the natural world with this incredible sense of wonder and joy and discovery. And let's face it, discovery is key for writers, for booksellers, for readers. The new book is An Immense World, and the subtitle is How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And Ed is making time out of his busy schedule to join us today. We're so totally stoked about this because this book is amazing. Dude, how did you turn out to be a science writer? How did we get here? I've always been interested in science. Um, that, mm-hmm. that sort of infectious joy, which you're, you're reading into the book, was in my head um, from as long as I can remember. I especially loved animals. You know, I was mm-hmm. the kid who uh, would uh, insist on going to the zoo all the time, uh, like watching nature documentaries, re- reading nature books. And, you know, that carried me through all of my education. I sort of figured that um, having been interested in science from as as all as young as I can remember, I would do it. Like I would be a PhD student um, and like make a career for myself in research. And it turned out that the the one hitch with that plan was that I am catastrophically bad at doing actual research. Uh, I was the world's worst graduate student, um, and I recognised that quite early on. So so instead, um, I thought that I would find different purpose and and better joy in talking and writing about science, um, which which is what I did. That nourishes my soul much more. Um, I get to learn about a lot of really cool things. Um, I've been a science writer since for about, you know, 15 plus years. Um, and this is my second book, but it's a topic that I have deeply loved for a long time, like mm-hmm. thinking about how other animals think and sense um, you know, it, it just feels like the good stuff. Um, the idea for this book came from my wife, Liz, um, who uh, it was also a wannabe PhD student who decided to to forge a career in, in communication instead. Um, but for the time she was doing work, she studied the um, visual systems of coral reef fish. So how some of the most colorful creatures in the world see uh, and perceive color around them. In many ways, this book is um, her gift to me, or the idea was her gift to me, and the, the book itself is my gift to her. Okay, you also start by teaching us all a little German, Umwelt. Umwelt. Can we talk yes. about this for a second? Because I had never heard this word until I started reading your book, and it does matter a lot in the context of what you're doing. It's sort of the the central underpinning idea of the whole book. Um, so uh, I do not speak German, uh, and so I will probably mangle the pronunciation of Umwelt, but that's my my best stab. And it was pioneered by a man uh, whose name I will also mangle, uh, Jakob von Uxkull. Von Uxkull um, pioneered this term in the early 20th century, um, and it ostensibly means environment in German. But um, he used it in a very specific way. He wasn't talking about the environment as just like the physical surroundings of, of an animal, um, but specifically the part of those surroundings that the animal can perceive, the unique set of sights and smells and textures and sounds that that creature can um, tune into, but that other creatures who might occupy the same physical space might not have any awareness of. So, you know, as an example, um, humans can see colors ranging from red to violet. Um, We can't see ultraviolet, but most other animals with color vision can, like a bee can. And to a bee, 
A sunflower isn't just uniform yellow, it has like an ultraviolet bullseye in its middle. The songbirds outside my window can sense the magnetic field of the planet. Um, you know, a shark can sense the electric fields produced by its prey, both things that, that we can't sense. So every animal has this perceptual bubble, this, this unique sense set of sensory information that is its world and it's alone. Um, and that is just a tiny sliver of all there is um, to sense. There's something you say in the introduction that I really appreciate, and I'm going to quote you for a second. This is a book not about superiority, but also about diversity. This is a book about animals as animals. Animals mm. are not just stand-ins for humans or fodder for brainstorming sessions. They have worth in themselves. And I think that's a really important point to make, that you are literally meeting a lot of creatures on their own terms, and that includes sticking your hand into a lot of tanks where I'm like, dude, this, this does not bode well. Right, right. That's very bad idea. Yes, right. What, 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 I, what have I done in the book? I got, uh, I got shocked by an electric fish. I got mm -hmm. punched by a mantis shrimp. Um, I was trapped traipsing around California searching for rattlesnakes, uh, trying to head towards rattlesnakes, which is the opposite direction yeah. most people try and go in. Uh, go the book is about trying to meet animals on their own terms. Uh, the I think that um, when we think about the senses mm -hmm. um, of other creatures, the, there's two mistakes we we make. What, one is to assume that, like humans have this um, special place in the the hierarchy of nature that we are you know dominant or better um, than, than other creatures around us. But the other is to only appreciate animals when they break that rule. So with the senses, there's a lot of talk about like six senses and, and super senses. So, you know, animals are only cool when like a shark can smell blood from miles away or, or an eagle has sharper eyes than, than us. They, they are only worth thinking about when they surpass our already lofty standards. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the crucial arguments in the book is that that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. That, um, the senses always come with trade-offs. Nothing is good at everything. So some, you know, there are things that we're good at. We have very sharp eyes. We have very sensitive fingertips. But um, in many ways, we're, we're substantially worse than other creatures. But it's not just ones that, that surpass us that matter. Scientists often study um, the, the ways animals sense um, for a few reasons. Like some of them are interested in, in finding ways of improving our own tech. The military has funded a lot of research on dolphins um, mm -hmm. because dolphin sonar teaches us how to make our sonar better. Um, and then some people study animals as, as sort of proxies for us, as these you know, model organisms whose interesting biology gives us hints about our own biology. And you know, fair play to both groups of the, both of those groups of people. But an immense world is not about either of those things. Right. It's about appreciating animals for themselves because that alone is worth doing. And because that gives us a, a wider and um, more wondrous sense of our own world and our place in it. Well, and also, I'm a city dweller. I, I'm, I'm a city person. I don't mm -hmm. ever want to meet a bear on a... I have a friend who grew up in Alaska. She's got some stories about meeting bears. Right. I don't ever want to meet a bear. I'm good. No, thanks. I learned a lot reading your book, but I'm pretty sure I'm smarter now that I've finished it. <laughs> because it's the level of detail. And again, I know I keep coming back to the joy, but... It is really kind of great the way you dig in with all of this. But, you know, we're a book podcast and we're a bookstore. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the Jane Austen and Mouse Pea story. If you have yeah. anything to do with books, you have to find a way to work Jane Austen in there. But 
You did it in a really grand way. I'm forcing it in with a shoehorn. <laughs> <laughs> right, for sure. Um, right. The, the Jane Austen connection um, is mice have a pheromone um, that's that's present in Ippy, uh, and the the pheromone uh, is a sexual attractant, and it's named Darcin um, after Mister Darcy, obviously. <laughs> Um, so you know, love love a good re- literary reference, especially love when the literary reference uh, becomes technical jargon. You know, here 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 is Darcin forevermore part of the scientific literature. I think I wanted to make sure that um, you know the book didn't just feel like a quote unquote science book. Um, right. That you know it has. Sure, it goes into the weeds, um, you know, it talks about, it gives you like rich detail that helps you understand these things. But it's also, I hope, um, you know, lyrical and beautiful. Um, I think that the senses, there's just this topic, umbelt, how other animals perceive. It's, It's so rich. It mattered to me a lot that the prose should live up to the, the high standard, the promise of the topic sets. I wanted people to have this like profound sense of joy. I, I wanted them to feel like the world feels wider and and even um, familiar things feel like newly unfamiliar. And, and I sort of wanted people to have this sense of like in every page, there's a moment where you just sort of put the book down and just stare out your window with this sort of newfound appreciation. I, I've joked before that I, I wanted the book to turn people into the like best slash worst dinner guests of all time um, that, you know, you would constantly want to like tell people about these, these cool things that you, you learned. What I'm asking people to do and what I've tried to do in the book of, of trying to appreciate the sensory worlds of, an, of other creatures, that is actually impossible. Um, you know, you can always try, like science gets us a, a long way. Uh, a book like this gets us f- further, but there's always going to be a separation, a gulf between what's existing in our head and what exists in another creature's head. And the latter is always a little unknowable. To jump that chasm, you need um, feats of imagination of, I think, uh, the, the kind that only like a book can really, really get, start getting at. Um, and there's something beautiful about crying um, really hard at a task that you know you won't fully succeed at, but you're going to give it a go anyway. And, and that's how this thinking about the senses of other, uh, the, you know, the sensory worlds of other animals feels like to me. I'm going to go back to your dinner party comment for a second, because I'm not sure I can <laughs> eat scallops the same way ever again. So in the section you have called light, one of the creatures you're talking about are scallops. And I did not know that they have many, 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 I, I mean, obviously the scallop that you eat is the muscle, but yeah. Can we talk about the eyes for a second? Yes, we, it's yes, freaking we can. me out. <laughs> they're wild, right? So, so yeah, the, the little, uh, you know, the little hockey puck of, of delicious flesh that's on your plate and, and seared in butter is just uh, one, one of the muscles. And mm-hmm. um, the whole animal has the, the beautiful shell that I think people can, can, um, can sort of imagine. But inside that shell is a whole creature. And on the rim of that shell um, are eyes, sometimes dozens, maybe, you know, a couple of hundred in some species. In some scallops, the eyes are, are genuinely beautiful. They look like um, little, like like almost like Christmas ornaments. Some mm-hmm. of them are like electric blue with small dots in the middle. So, firstly, a scallop can look at you. That's weird. That's that's a little unsettling for for an animal that I think some people don't even um, you know realize are animals. What does a scallop see, and why does it need s- so many eyes? Um, 
the weird thing about scallop vision is that the eyes are actually pretty good. Like for for an animal that simple, like the the optics, the quality of the eyes are like su- surprisingly high. Um, but the animal's brain is incredibly simple. So what is it doing with all the information of the eyes? Like in the book, I have this analogy of like, imagine the scallop is a security card and it's got a bank of monitors in front of it. And each of those monitors is connected to a state-of-the-art camera. And that's the that's the eyes. So it's getting all this information from all this like very, very sophisticated tech. But what it sees on the monitor is not the image that the eye sees. It's probably just like, um, you know, like maybe green if it spots if the eye spotted something interesting, or like black if if nothing. Um, it's the simplest possible information, um, and that's what the brain is capable of processing. But that's really weird because when we think about vision, so you know, I'm looking at you now. I can see my laptop. I can see the room. I have a scene playing out in front of me. The scallop almost certainly doesn't have that. It has some awareness of where around it something interesting is happening because the eyes are very good. But I don't think it has scenes playing out in its head. I don't think there's like a movie of the world that that exists in the scallop's brain. And just that idea of seeing without scenes is so different to what we do and so um, and so hard to imagine that I, I think it, it ends up being kind of cool. You know, you, you can you sort of sit there for a while having to work at, at thinking about this. Like the, the scientist I, I spoke to who who studied these creatures was like, I I never imagined like spending so much of my life thinking about what a scallop sees. I think it's it's beautiful and challenging and 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 kind of wonderful. Can we just talk about how you sit down and map out a book like this? Because you're talking about everything from mosquitoes and ants and some worms that I don't ever want to meet to <laughs> bears and bats and owls and elephants. And we're just doing a wide range because they all fit into, obviously, this larger world. But you've got to organize all of this. From the very start, within the moment I thought I was going to do this book, it, became, it felt obvious that I was going to structure it around different senses. And it allows me to talk about what each sense does well and what kinds of things it's useful for. Um, and you know, that might be a weird thing to think about. Like, obviously, we have the senses we have. We kind of think that they're great. Um, but in most cases, um, there are exceptions. Like there are animals that don't see. There are animals that don't hear. There's actually quite a lot of animals that don't hear. So things like sound and like are not, are not like universally useful. And we then have to think like, what actually are those stimuli good for? Like why would you want to sense those things, and how do animals use that? So by by th- talking about the different senses it, it, as uh, individual chapters, we sort of get to that that kind of deeper philosophical question of of why. I have seen other people write about the senses in in the traditional five buckets. And the reason we think about the five senses is Aristotle. Um, that's his uh, classification scheme, and we sort of embraced it over time. But it, it, there are problems with it. Firstly, it misses out some senses that even we have. So it misses out the internal ones, like proprioception, which is how I know where my arms and legs are, even though I'm looking at the camera right now. Um it ignores the fact that in some creatures, many of the senses that, that we think of as being separate are probably fused together. Like for, for an octopus, its suckers are, are lined with both 
taste and touch sensors. And, you know, as far as I know, an octopus might have just one sense of taste touch. It might feel, um, it might feel a flavor or it might, um, know the texture, uh, it might know the texture of a flavor. It might have the, the taste of a shape. And then there are the senses that uh, we don't have. So being able to sense electric fields, magnetic fields, um, and then there are things that I think sometimes get get ignored in, in talking about the senses. So I have a whole chapter on pain. Um, I have a chapter on heat, like how we think about temperature. And I really wanted to to get at those things to show people that um, again, it's that defamiliarization thing that, that this this um, rubric that we've all been taught and grown up with. You know, there are five senses. Um, even for humans, is a little bit limiting, and certainly in in terms of the natural world, um, is is extremely limiting. And you know that 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 feeling of like I am expecting five chapters, actually there are twelve. Um, is part of the book's ability to capture like something something new about this topic. Yeah, which includes a chapter called Contact and Flow, mm-hmm, right. and Peacocks. Right. And soundtracks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, right, I'm going to tell you the, the peacock thing. So this was actually part of a, a, a structural challenge within the book. So, uh-huh. okay. so, so very quickly, the peacocks. If you think of peacocks, what do you think about? They're the mean. They're I mean. mean. That's okay. That's what, that wasn't the answer I was looking for. But also, <laughs> totally fair. They're mean. They're very loud. Um, but you know, they have the tail, the big, yes. gaudy, flamboyant, obvious tail. But they also have a crest, right? They have some mm-hmm. sticky up feathers on the head that most people just ignore because why would you look at the crest feathers when you have the tail? Turns out that the crest feathers vibrate at exactly the same fre- resonant frequency as the tail shakes when the male displays. So the male fans out its tail, shakes the tail, it creates um, uh, vibrations in the air, and those exact vibrations make the crest feathers shake. So... It seems that when a peacock is watching another peacock display, it's not just seeing the display, it's also feeling it in its head. I love that the, the scientists who studied this uh, for, a, for a control stimulus, for something that isn't a recording of a, a male a, a peacock display, they used uh, the BG. Um, <laughs> they didn't only use the BG, they wanted me to be, to be very clear about that. Uh, they tried a number of other musical stimuli, but, but Staying Alive by the Bee Gees was, was one of them. Um, there's a few little little moments in the book where people have actually used uh, uh, popular songs um, in their experiments. But I'll leave, you to, I'll leave you to find those out for, for yourself. This was an open question. Like, where do I put that story? Is that hearing? Is it touch? It's sort of a bit of both. There's a, a kind of chapter and a half that, that bridges the divide between those things. Because with, with humans, like we're used to thinking of touch as a, a a thing of direct contact. But um, for a lot of animals, touch operates at a distance. Like a fish can sense the currents created by the fish swimming around it. Um, uh, A cricket can sense the air currents created by a spider charging at it. Um, So when you start thinking about, about that, touch becomes actually a much wider and weirder sense than what we have. And trying to figure out how to to structure in the book was was a challenge. Um, but you know, when, when when you actually get it, you'll see like how I've, how I've tried to mm-hmm. to address it. And also, you say that hearing is most closely related to touch. I need you to explain that because I think I understand where, how that happens and where that comes from. But it, the other part of my brain is saying, "What?" In the way we hear, 
um, we have all this like stuff on the side of our heads and it takes uh, sound waves, which are uh, waves of pressure in the air, and it converts that stimulus um, into um, something that deflects tiny little hair cells in our inner ear. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, it's kind of touch, right? It's um, what touch is, is a mechanical sense, something that translates a physical movement in the world into a, a nervous signal that our brains can interpret. What we typically think of as touch, like that's achieved by pressing a finger against an object or having something touch or make contact with our skin, that mechanical force turns into a nervous signal. But that's also what hearing is. It's about translating those pressure waves in the air into uh, this this stimulus that that deflects a little hair inside our ears. There's sort of a shared evolutionary history to that, like the the um, the lateral line that fishes use to sense water currents um, mm-hmm. are related to those hair cells in our ears. And the um, cells that electric fish use to sense electric fields that they and other fish generate, um, they're also related, right? So there's thread of connectedness that links all these senses that actually we think of as being incredibly different. But they're all they're all connected, like touch, hearing, the electric sense. They're, they're of a kind and distinct from things like smell and uh, and taste and vision. We don't ultimately know either if animals are necessarily talking to each other or using their senses to navigate through their space. I mean, you sort of alluded to this with scallops and their many, many, many eyes. Oof, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get over that. But at the same time, you know, we know whales sing, we know dolphins communicate with each other. There are certain things we do know, but because we are not in the bodies of these creatures, we can't always know what they're up to. So how do you, as the journalist, figure out what part of the story you follow? Some of the protagonists of the book, like the main characters, and by mm-hmm. that I mean either the scientists who I met or the animals who I, mm-hmm. I focused on, were very obvious from the start. Like I, I, I know about this this um, this topic. I've been writing about it for a while, so I knew that I wanted to include like things that probably most people have never heard of. I mean, mm-hmm. scallops, like people have heard of them but didn't know their eyes. You know, there are mantis shrimps in the books and, and uh, star-nosed moles, like r- weirdos, you know, animals mm-hmm. that probably have never heard of and, and completely reasonably so. I can take you as far as the science goes and, you know, maybe a little bit beyond that. Some of it comes from interviewing the scientists who work in, in this field because the papers that they write, like what's in the scientific literature, doesn't really have those imaginative features. Right? They just, it's just the data that there you have it. But the people who study these animals, they've all thought about this question. You know, what is, it, what, what is this creature who I work with all the time thinking? What, what is it like um, to, to, to be a bat or, or a mantis shrimp or whatever? So when you ask them, like, just put aside like the 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 you know the the academic shell, like all the trappings of, of academia, and just go nuts, like go on a little speculative journey with me, like tell me what you're imagining. Um, they always have answers, and they're great answers. Um, and I think that gets at some of the the weirdness in in this topic that that's hard to to think about. So you you talked about the the difficulty in sometimes working out whether an animal is like sensing or communicating. Mm. So one really good example about this, like um, there are fish that generate their own electricity. They create mm-hmm. electric fields, <laughs> and they sense the the wor- obst- obstacles around them by looking at how those obstacles um, change the shape of those fields, whether they're conductive, like another fish, 
or insulating like a rock. Um, that's incredible in its own right. But it gets weirder when you know when you realize that those fields that they produce are also the means by which they communicate with other electric fish. So they produce electricity. They're using it as a means of navigation, but also as a way of talking. But that means that if one changes, so does the other. So when electric fish have fights, sometimes one will signal like peace, you know, I'm I'm done by cutting out its electric field by just you know being si- electrically silent for a while. Mm-hmm. But that's not only a, a peace offering; that also shuts down its awareness of its surroundings. It's as if, like, whenever I say, whenever I tried to like make up with a friend who I had a row with, I had to like plug my ears and close my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that you know just another one of these like weird ways, like weird things that these animals are doing that that I think is is not obvious, but that really just sort of make you think about how to like interpret their behavior. You talk about whales having started as the deer-like creature 50 million years before they walked in. How did I miss that? Was I not paying attention in the fourth grade? I mean, is this new information? What do you mean whales started with legs on the ground like, and then went into... What? Right, 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 right. <laughs> maybe maybe you were just like not paying attention 50 million years ago while all this was happening. You just, just really missed it. Um, uh, yeah, so a long time ago, um, you had a small deer-like creature that spent more and more of its time in water, and like its descendants became more and more adapted to water. They lost their legs, you know, their legs became flippers, and all. And that's that's how we have whales. It's actually what like it's it's one of the um, like best documented of uh, these like crazy evolutionary transitions we have. We we have a lot of fossils showing like all mm-hmm. the intermediate steps along the way. Um, and and one thing I love is that um, at, at some point during the process they um, went down two very different routes in terms mm-hmm. of their senses. So you have uh, one route that um, went like big and deep. Um, so their hearing became tuned to low frequencies, their bodies ballooned in size. And now you have things like blue and humpback whales that produce these incredibly low frequency calls that could theoretically like carry across an entire ocean. Maybe they hear over not quite those distances, but like certainly immense distances. Which makes you think, um, if you see a single blue whale swimming in the sea, is that whale alone? Because it can probably hear a lot of other whales very far away from it, um, and its own calls can probably be heard by other whales far away from it. So like, what actually counts as a pod of whales? Do you need to see multiple whales as a human like next to each other for that to count as a group? Or can a group of very disparate whales count as a pod? You have another group of whales that went in the opposite direction. They went small and high. Um, so they um, dolphins um, and their relatives produce these high-pitched calls, and they echolocate. They they navigate the world by uh, by listening out for the rebounding echoes of their own calls, and they can do all sorts of crazy things with that. They, you know, they can probably use their echolocation a bit like an MRI scanner. They can see like the bones inside you. They can see the swim bladders in the fish that they hunt. Dolphin can probably tell apart different species of fish by the shape of its swim bladder. You don't look at a deer um, and think, "I think I think I know how this is going to end up in in nope. you know a few dozen million years." Nope. <laughs> Nope, no idea until I read it in your book. But it does bring me to a larger point, too. I mean, creatures evolve. Evolution is a thing. 
it is real, it is continual, and science also evolves. And we're mm-hmm. living in a moment in world history where that particular concept seems to be hard for a lot of folks. And, and that is something you bring up in the book. You're saying, you know, there are moments where science has sort of decided, here we are in this point, and then, then they find out we're wrong. And yeah. that is sort of the nature of that discovery and that investigation, though, because you are doing the experiments, you're chasing the information, you're chasing the creatures in some cases. Did you have any moments where you were kind of like, oh, no, that's got to go because that's just been disproven completely and we just can't use that anymore? So the chapter on sensing magnetic fields gets at this a little bit Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. that is a very difficult sense to study. We don't really have an intuitive understanding of it. We don't know what the organ is that detects magnetic fields in the animals that can do that. And there are a lot of discoveries that come out and then are rapidly disproven. Also partly because there's a lot of interest here and there's a lot of competition and mm-hmm. competition sometimes fuels sloppy work. We understand that science is not this like caricatured neutral force of discovery that it is sometimes painted as. It's not as if like scientists are these like perfect empirical objective beings um, that can you know look at the world through this like completely neutral lens. Like their, um, the way they interpret their results is profoundly influenced by the kinds of experiments that they design, which is influenced by the kinds of questions that they think to ask, which are influenced by their imaginations, their culture, their, their values at the time. And yeah, as you say, there are so many instances where people have, um, based on how they thought the senses worked, like that, that whether it's like the Aristotelian five senses thing or, or something else. They had very firm ideas about how animals worked, and they completely ignored really obvious glaring clues about things that work differently. And it took people who thought a little bit outside the box and, and who had came at it from a, from a different point of view to see past that. And I think all of that makes clear that science is this in, inherently social enterprise. Like it really does depend on the the ways of thinking of the people who get to do it. You know, at, at the start of this, we, we talked about how the book is about diversity, not superiority. And, and, you know, I mean, I meant that in terms of diversity of the senses, but I also mean that in terms of diversity of researchers. You know, it's why encouraging as broad a range of people as possible to be scientists mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is so important. I mean, at this point, very quickly at the start of the book about how a lot of people who study the senses have like... Um, you know, weird sensory things themselves. Um, you know, they they have um, quirks of their neurology that that um, some people might describe as disorders, um, and other people, I think, more rightly, just describe as variation. And that helps them to see like the ways in which the creatures they're looking at might also be atypical and interesting. And this book also ended up taking you a little bit longer than you'd planned. You'd been on book leave in early 2020, and then suddenly you were asked to come back to the Atlantic to lead their COVID pandemic coverage and subsequently won a Pulitzer. So congratulations. And I've read all of those articles. Thank you. um, And stayed calm while I was reading. (laughs) That's great. Uh, That was the intended effect. Thank you. Right. But here you are, you've had to put the book aside. And can we just talk about that for a second and the impact it had on you as a writer and how also that may have changed your writing style? It was very jarring. Um, Mm. It was sad having to put down the book because I was having so much fun with it. It was jarring going back into it. Like, firstly, it was necessary. Um, I think, you know, in 
I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say the book saved me a bit. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Pandemic reporting is grueling and, and horrible uh, and often incredibly tragic. Um, so to switch gears and and um, and embrace something that is so joyful and wondrous that uh, uh, after nine months of um, quite intense work and burnout um, was was very much a salve. You know, like mm-hmm, I, I did mm-hmm. joke. I have joked before, right? Like. Uh, for most people, book writing is not a famously rejuvenating activity. You know, no one thinks like, I will heal by writing a book. And yet it 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 very much felt like that for mm-hmm. me. Um, it was it was restorative and helpful. But the the, the transition moment was was very jarring. And you know, we we've talked a lot about the the feats of imagination required to do this work. Um you know, to it, it helps to have consistent periods of time when you're really thinking about this, where you're you're deep in this in this mindset and and leaving it and having to go back um, very hard. Um, I did as uh, when I came back to it for for round two, I did discover that I basically plotted out an entire chapter and completely organized it and wrote like very very detailed notes to myself, so that I completely forgotten about. So. Uh, January 2021, Ed was just like enormously grateful to uh, February 2020, Ed, who had really like <laughs> done him a solid. Um, and it turned out that so a lot of my writing in the pandemic um, is is predicated on this idea that part of the problem we faced is a is sort of catastrophic lack of empathy with each other, like mm-hmm. um, a failure to recognize the experiences of other people. And this book is about radical acts of empathy. It's about trying mm-hmm. to uh, to get in the minds of you know not just other people but entirely entirely different species. So I, I'm not sure there was like a specific idea that threaded its way through, but like having that theme be a constant of the work made it a little less jarring. Like switching back and forth between those two things. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was also just like the the, the practical aspect of it. Like I I wrote. I, I don't even know how many like back-to-back mammoth, like many thousands of word features on the pandemic, um, you know, between March and December of 2020. And like long form writing, I think, is like is like a muscle. Um, you know, you you do it enough times, um, you become like jacked. Um, and that's how I felt going into the second half of the book. You know, I felt like I had run like a dozen marathons in a row already. So what was a few more? It was telling to me that like the second half of the book uh, took so much less time to write than the first half of it. Cause I'd done or like this really grueling intensive, like Iron Man writing workout in, in the middle of it. Yeah. And something you said in an earlier interview that I really loved was that magazine writing is about the past and the future. Newspapers mm. are about the present and to that, I would add books are about the context. And you have delivered a really fun, smart way to experience context. The thing that I really appreciate about this book is the narrative moves, the sentences are beautiful, and I was much smarter at the end of it. Plus, you have a corgi named Typo. Me too, yeah. A, a very, very strong writer name, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Yep, he's typo. Uh, that was another. That was another reason why having a, a bit of a break was was good. Like we got typo um, just as as I started going to the second phase of book leave. If people tend to not write books for restorative activity, I think also they tend to not get a puppy as mm-hmm. a you know as a famously relaxing thing to do. 
I did all of those at the same time. And I, mm -hmm. I question the wisdom of that, that synchronicity in hindsight, but it did work out. Typo is a, a bundle of joy. He did help me think about the world through the, 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 the mm -hmm. senses of another creature who is now in my life. Um, his full name is Typography, which is what he gets called when he's bad. I love him to bits. And he, he cameos repeatedly throughout the book. He's a quite excellent presence, but He's not your only literary reference. I mean, obviously, we alluded to the Jane Austen mouse pee thing, yeah. but let's talk about you as a reader for a second, because it's mm -hmm. obvious that you very much care about your sentences and how the story goes. And mm -hmm. really, ultimately, even if we're talking about star-nosed moles, we're mm -hmm. talking about story. And this yeah. matters. So, you know, I know in the past you've also mentioned Parasite Rex by a buddy of yours right. called Carl Zimmer, but that Carl can't Zimmer. be the only literary influence on you. Oh, um, no, 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 not at all. Um, and in fact, my favorite um, science writers are the ones who I think um, really bridge that gap, mm -hmm. that, that not gap, but, you know, who, who, who straddle both of those worlds, the scientific mm -hmm. and the literary, um, and who, who managed to bring this intense sense of beauty um, and, and warmth and profundity to their work. Um, so, um, you know, I, I know you've talked you talk to Mary Roach before. I think she absolutely does yep. that. You know, she is always described as the funniest science writer in America. Mm -hmm. And I think she is the undisputed holder of that title. I was ju I've just read um, a book by um, a friend of mine, Sabrina Imbler, mm -hmm. um, whose book, uh, How Far the Light Reaches, comes out in December. Mm -hmm. And it is a spectacular feat of nature writing the, the likes of which I've never seen. It, it is a blend of memoir and marine biology. It's uh, Sabrina using their own life as a metaphor for the creatures of the deep and vice versa in a way that like in the hands of any less of a writer would not work. And, and, in, and in their hands, absolutely works. It's just spectacular. Um, Rebecca Giggs wrote a book called mm -hmm. Fathoms about mm -hmm. that's about whales, but also about everything else about whales, right? Yep. Our relationship with whales, how we think about whales. And again, like just beautiful, soaring writing. When I was writing my first book, I Contain Multitudes, um, some of the people I looked to for inspiration included like um, Helen, Helen McDonald, um, who's, who's H. Hawk again, um, mm -hmm. you know, a, a memoir and nature writing. Um, how do you classify it? You kind of can't, um, but it, it excels in all of those genres that it's part of. There's a lot out there, and I sort of feel like we're in this charmed golden age of nature writing, where mm -hmm. um, I, there's 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 so many people who are like breaking the boundaries of, of genre of, of form, um, and um, who are like describing nature and then science in, in just the most like achingly beautiful ways. Who are who are bringing not just knowledge to their work, but like deep wisdom too. All of that has like really inspired me as a writer. Like I, I count those those people I named and many more as like my guideposts, my sources of inspiration. I realize you're about to start touring to support an immense world, but have you started thinking about the next book? Well, so yes and no. Um, I mean, hilariously, like the, the, when I said that this, the the um, idea from this book came from my wife Liz. Um, I get through like periodic moments of self-flagellation often in the winter. So in, you know, the winter of like 2018, I was having a moment where like, you know, I can take multitudes been out for a few years. And I thought like my career is over. I've stagnated. I will never do anything again. I have my well of book ideas is, is run dry. You know, I'm just going to slink off into, into obscurity and, and forevermore. And she, 
snapped me out of that and suggested, why don't you just write a book about animal senses? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was a, a great idea. So uh, I I am trying to think about what next. Firstly, um, everyone keeps asking me if I'm going to write a pandemic book. I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, m- maybe, um, but firstly, like it's not over yet. And mm-hmm. I, I do think it's a little weird that like a lot of books came out after year one. Um, and like, that's like chapter one of this very long story. I'm qu- I'm quite burned out with it. So finding like the, the mental and emotional strength and energy to, to do that project, I think is, is something for the future, not right now. I still really want to write about the natural world. I, I care about it so much and I mm-hmm. love doing it so much. Both the books that I've written so far, um, I Contain Multitudes, which is about microbes mm-hmm. around us, an immense world about the animal senses, both have this sort of connective tissue about um, revealing parts of our reality that we don't, um, that we aren't privy to and that we don't pay attention to, like showing hits, bits of hidden meaning in the world um, that help to take things that we take for granted, like our bodies or um, our conscious experiences and to make them feel new and fresh and wondrous again is a thing that, you know, gets me out of bed and, and gets me to my my keyboard. Um, so I think I can see like maybe a trilogy of books that are, you know, of which I've now written two that are around that idea. Um, and I'm sort of noodling about what the what the third one might be. But um, there's 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 definitely like, a theme that I I want to um, I want to chase a little bit further. We can be patient. It's okay. We can be patient. <laughs> Maybe next time I'll get through an entire book leave and crank out a third book without a global disaster getting getting in the way. That would be that would be delightful. Okay, fingers crossed. Ed Young, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. An immense world is out now. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of An Immense World. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble home store in Cincinnati, Ohio. And with me is my book buddy, Becky. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hey, so we've got a couple of books to cover. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. So I chose a book called Mama's Last Hug by James DeWall. So where An Immense World talks about the sensory attributes of animals, Mama's Last Hug focuses on the emotional capabilities of animals. So you may remember, or if you don't, please, after this episode, jump right in. Uh, There are some YouTube videos about a chimpanzee named Mama. And in the last sort of weeks of her life, um, she was basically immobile, really despondent, and was on her deathbed. She was getting visits by um, this biologist who would pop into her room and she would light up. She would smile. She would give him a hug. She would move around. She would pat him on the back of the neck. Uh, Just this beautiful, overwhelmingly emotional scene every time he came to visit before she passed away. So this was sort of the core of James DeWall's theory that he wrote this book about, which is that animals and humans share emotional capabilities, uh, that humans are not the only species that can experience and express joy, fear, sadness, grief, shame, and love and empathy. So he uses several different examples from the animal kingdom 
um, and really just pushes against the idea that a lot of people use is that humans project their emotions onto animals. So my dog is sad because I'm going to work. Um, maybe he actually is sad. Uh, so he really is driving this theory that emotions are part of animal existence and humans are also animals. So why wouldn't we be sharing the same capacity for kindness and love and sadness that a chimpanzee does, or maybe a dog? Um, it's a lovely book. It might make you shed a couple of tears. You definitely will cry uh, if you watch these Mama's Last Hug videos on YouTube. Hopefully it will prompt you to pick up this book. It's, it's really, really well done. So please pick up Mama's Last Hug by James DeWalt. Oh. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. I do. And I love that book. And I love that it, um, it definitely just kind of ties right into mine, um, (laughs) which is great. Um, So the book that I chose is Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell and Know by Alexandra Horowitz. And this book came out actually, like, I think it's maybe 15 years ago. Um, And, uh, but it's, it was a bestseller. And there's a really good reason because I mean, I don't know about you, but Dogs are a man's best friend. Yes. So, um, so yeah. So it would make sense for us to try to get to know them a little bit better. And for a long time, I think it's just been a big mystery of are dogs as smart as maybe we're giving them the credit for? Maybe they're not. Um, and um, and this book does a lot of work in trying to at least give us a little bit more information. Of course, we're never going to know what's going on in, in a dog's mind, in our minds, you know, sometimes too. But, <laughs> um, but this book does a lot about um, at least helping us understand what they're perceiving, what they're seeing. And um, I think it's just, it, it gives us just a lot of info of like, did you know that dog's favorite colors, or at least what they can see really, really well, are blues and greens. So those colors just pop for them. And, um, but then like yellows and oranges, they don't really see as well. Um, and a lot has to do with like the cones in their eyes and what they're able to, um, kind of perceive. Also, um, dogs have very little spatial awareness. So as if you've had a dog, you definitely know, like little dogs think that they're as big as a bear, uh, (laughs) big dogs might think that they're as small as a mouse. And, um, and they even showed, uh, they did some research where like, um, where a dog came across a mirror and just kept going, really wasn't interested. Whereas a chimp, whereas a human, whereas a lot of other animals, when they come to a mirror and see their reflection, they are either, you know, kind of checking themselves out or they're kind of checking out like, wait, is that, is that me? Is that someone else? Like, am I, wait, (laughs) so, um, Anyway, it's, it's just, it's a lot of it is common sense, but I think a lot of it, what it does, it just reaffirms what we thought, what we were hoping that our dogs were feeling. Maybe your dog actually is upset when you go to work that, you know, that I I think it, yeah, that is happening. So anyway, um, it's just, it's a really fun book. And I, I just highly recommend if you are a dog lover, if you, um, are a dog owner, this is, it's just a great book. Um, Alexandra Horowitz is a cognitive scientist, but she is also just a dog lover and owner. So uh, she just does a really good job of explaining uh, just a lot of those little things that we notice and kind of almost take, a, uh, take for granted um, and the assumptions that we're making and kind of lets you know whether they're accurate or not. So highly recommend. <laughs> uh, 
Right. Fantastic. And I can definitely attest that my dog has very little spatial awareness. <laughs> he also really likes to pick up books and carry them around the house. So oh. I'm hoping to maybe get him a name tag and a job um, at the store. There. Just like deliver books to the customers. I, I think that would go well. That's genius. He would probably hate it. Um, <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and watching Poured Over. Uh, please give us a rating and, a, and subscribe to us so you don't miss an episode. Um, and you can follow my home store and Becky's home store at uh, BN Westchester. Uh, My name is Mark. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in and happy reading, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.